0: Welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is a risk management firm specialising in financial crime. Our aim of these podcasts is to bring you interesting news, interviews, and recordings of our exclusive events from the world of financial crime. Is financial crime compliance treated like a roll of the dice? Grab your chips. We are about to talk about the elephant in the room Financial crime compliance in land-based casinos and digital gaming In this podcast, Sandeep Shroa, Associate Director of Themis talks to Josie Preston, Head of Anti-Money Laundering of Ritz Club London about financial crime compliance and the impact to land-based and digital gaming COVID-19 has shut down the world, including land-based casinos Gaming customers are now more likely to be playing online as an alternative. However, does iGaming have the controls, governance and defence capabilities to ensure money laundering is kept at bay? Find out more in this exclusive interview. Hello
1: and welcome to um, our next edition of our podcast, which is around gaming and financial crime compliance. Um, My name is Sandeep Thrower. I work for Themis Services as an Associate Director. Um, I would also like to introduce our guest today, who is Josie Preston. She is the head of AML at the Ritz Club in Knightsbridge, London. So thank you for joining us, Josie.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So, Josie, we just uh, obviously want to take a little bit of time out and um, understand financial crime and the gaming industry. Um, so I've put together a few questions which hopefully keep everyone enticed and excited. Um, so I'll start with um, the first question for you here, Josie. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself um, and your experience in financial crime compliance?
2: Um, well, I started my career in the game industry in the early 2000s as a casino dealer, actually. And I've worked in many different roles for many different domestic and international operators. And over the years, I received the standard AML training, which I find to be fascinating. And that's really where my interest in financial crime first started. And years later, I served in the British Army as a military intelligence officer. And that's where I made the decision to combine skills and my gaming experience to pursue a career in AML compliance in the private sector. I'm currently the head of AML and MLRO at the Ritz Club Casino Mayfair. Prior to this, I headed up a team of AML analysts at Rank Group covering the eight London casinos under the Crown Casino brand.
1: Fantastic. So you've got a great deal of experience there, JC, which is great. Um, it's good to see. So just I'll move on to a second question from then and so Um, Casino gaming is obviously best known for sort of physical cash injection. Um, How do casinos approve a customer's source of funds, Josie?
2: So in the casino industry, cash placement is undoubtedly one of the primary money laundering vulnerabilities. And in a casino, cash is accepted incrementally over the tables and incrementally or in bulk at the cash desk. And this may be in volumes and values way in excess of what would be accepted at the branch of a local bank and without the same level of scrutiny and certain crucial questions being asked. So, casinos should have a risk-sensitive cash acceptance policy in place to mitigate the money laundering placement risk. And that will include customer interaction at the time of the attempted transaction, which involves asking questions, and not only about the source of funds or where the cash came from, but also why it's in the cash format, why it's in the denomination it is, and if the customer can provide any supporting documentation as evidence to corroborate their disclosures. Um, the first question that anyone authorising the cash should be asking themselves is is the explanation and the evidence commensurate with the customer's profile and the appearance of the cash? So, on several occasions, I've seen interactions that have been recorded which state the source of funds was the ATM. So you can see that sometimes source of funds can be confused with source of transfer on the first line of defense. And often these interactions are undertaken by gaming staff. So the responsibility of cash acceptance does not lie with a dedicated role. And it's spread out amongst many roles on the gaming floors. So that's quite different to how it would be in financial services. And just to give an example, if through KYC we knew a customer to be an investment banker, um, and they entered the casino with lots of low denomination used notes, if they said that the source of those funds was a performance bonus from their employment, that would obviously not be a satisfactory answer, and it wouldn't be consistent with the cash that's been presented in front of them. So you would expect a performance bonus from a large company to be paid by a bank transfer. So the story they would, they would have given there would have raised a red flag. And on the due diligence level, the source of funds is considered the activity or the event which generated the funds. So that could be employment, business, inheritance. And that is recorded on the membership profile. And if it's not, those questions need to be asked at the time of the cash transaction, just to provide insight as to whether their disclosures are credible. And casinos also undertake organic open source investigation to sense check the customer's disclosures about the source of the cash and any evidence. And this prevents cash acceptance from becoming a box ticking exercise when we have a regulatory requirement to apply a risk-based approach.
1: Fantastic. Thank you for that. It's brilliant. Um, So, I'll move on to any examples then, really, JC. So, are you able to provide any examples of when casinos have been used for money laundering?
2: So, casinos can be utilised to facilitate money laundering at all stages of the traditional three-stage model. And if we think about placement, so cash buying, as we've just mentioned, will be the most common and probably the most successful way to utilise the casino at the placement level. With layering, there's many, many ways this can be done in the casino. One of the simplest ways of identifying this, for example, would be a large cash buy-in or a large buy-in, minimal turnover, so minimal play on the tables and then cash out. So the money launderer's objective is obviously to layer as effectively as possible, but with minimal personal costs. And gaming staff are trained to be vigilant, report indicators of this via an internal SAR. But layering does not necessarily have to be achieved over the tables. It can also be done through slots and electronic games using Tito tickets. And if the listeners aren't familiar, a Tito ticket is effectively a cash out receipt. So a customer can feed cash into a slot machine, turn it over a couple of times, have a couple of spins, cash out that Tito receipt And then they can feed that ticket back into another machine and so on until the ticket appears to be legitimate winnings and the trail is sort of the audit trail between these machines is lost. Um, With integration, integration of laundered funds back into the legitimate financial system can be achieved through obtaining a winner's check after the layering process or through transfer of funds back into a legitimate bank account. And if we think about on most occasions, even funds remitted or transferred into a bank account will assume to be winnings when they appear on the statement, maybe even at the bank. And other third parties will rarely question the amount of funds that were originally deposited or bought in with, if at all. So going back to your question of example, there's one particular example that springs to mind. Um, So the customer involved was an existing customer, and he was a subject to a SAR, so we'll just call him Mr A. So Mr. Yep. A had been playing in the casino, and he was holding some chips. They'd been winning and losing, and he was holding some £5,000 chips. And a new, uh, two new customers entered, and there were a couple, and they tried to buy in immediately at the table for loose cash. And this was refused because we didn't know the customers. They, they, were, they were walk-ins off the street, so they, we didn't have the membership information available. We didn't have any KYC information recorded, and the cash was around 20000 which is a fairly significant amount. So what happened next, the customer, um, the, the new customers gestured to Mr. A and they spoke in a common language. And Mr. A and the male customer went into the men's restroom which is off camera. So anything that happened in there would not be seen by the casinos and surveillance. And whilst in there, Mr. A had obviously swapped his 5,000 pound chips for their questionable cash. So the couple returned to the gaming floor and walked immediately up to a back, blackjack table and attempted to buy in with those 5,000 pound chips. But in casinos, all chips attract, especially the higher value chips. So they refused and the couple were asked to leave, taking Mr. A with them. So this was reported to me as an internal SAR and upon further investigation, I decided it was likely that Mr. A had swapped, made the swap without realizing that that was a money laundering flag and it wasn't allowed. So I gave him the benefit of the doubt on that occasion, but we SAR'd and barred the other couple that we didn't know, but being the subject or associated subject of a SAR by our internal policy then placed Mr A in a high risk category. So we re- requested full DD documentation. So prior to this, he was just a medium risk customer, where the disclosures were enough, but, the docu- but as a high risk customer, documents were required. And eventually, he provided us with bank statements, business bank statements, and accounts for his business. So it, was, it turned out there's a frozen food supplier making a small profit according to the accounts when we checked on his house. But those accounts didn't match the accounts he provided to us from his accountant from the same period. So that was really the first red flag. So Mr A also provided business bank statements. So when I analyzed those, I found that he only supplied one business, frozen food to one business. So further investigation revealed it to be a small kebab shop on a strip mall in a, in a very quiet residential area in greater london and look at those bank statements further mr a's sole customer had been ordering on average ten thousand pounds worth of frozen food goods from mr a and this is per week so that's a lot of kebabs <laughs> so we oh, went yeah. as
0: far to yeah
2: was yeah, a lot of kebabs so we went as far to um conduct open source and even establish the prices in that kebab shop even though That isn't our customer. That's the extent, you know, we go to the nth degree if we have a suspicion of money laundering. And I think I worked out that in one week, the kebab shop would have had to have sold 4,000 meal deals at cost to warrant orders of the size he was ordering from Mr. A's business, which is highly unlikely. So in the end, Mr. A was charged as a result of that investigation. But I think that's quite a good example of how money launderers attempt to both launder through the casino and also what we call criminal lifestyle spenders, which are those people that are not utilising the casino to facilitate the money laundering, but also enjoy gambling with the proceeds of crime. And in this case, it was a trade-based money laundering through the frozen food business.
1: Fantastic, Josie. Looks like Mr. A got himself into quite a pickle. I
2: think That's he really- did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so moving away from that, so we just want to talk about some like international gamers. Um, <laughs> You know, as an example, I can go to a majority of casinos around the world um, and I can effectively go in and play. Um, what controls do casinos have for international gamers and their source of funds?
2: So, many casinos in the UK, especially in Mayfair and London, rely on seasonal overseas customers. And the overseas customer base can make up over 85% of their total customer demographic. So, the majority of their customer base. So this means that casinos, especially those casinos, must have robust screening technology and resources in place to identify when a customer's hit a high-risk jurisdiction applicable to their circumstances. So that can be, talking about their circumstances, that could be their residency, status and nationality, their citizenship, and also any areas of operation for their businesses are taken into account. The requirement to conduct DDD on customers from high-risk third countries was transposed by the Fifth Money Laundering Directive, so it's really important that those individuals are identified and moved into those high-risk categories. It's also important that any customer who has been identified as a pet from a high-risk jurisdiction is identified at that point, because a proportionate level of DD must be applied relative to the risk posed by their circumstances. So with overseas customers, they're actually subjected to the same DD process as with a domestic customer. So that's the collection, collation, analysis of the DD information. But with overseas customers, there may be the need to exercise cultural awareness and understanding of cultural nuances to achieve this successfully, me, which means like the capability to interpret interactions and translate documentation into English rapidly. And those analysts working on those. Um, higher risk cases should have familiarity with foreign identity documents and other DD documents so for example foreign tax returns. Also overseas customers are more likely to utilize casino currency exchange services which we know is a high risk service and these transactions should be treated in the exact same way as any of the loose cash which is a cash acceptance process we were talking about earlier. If there's substantial amounts of currency brought in I'd expect managers the who had the responsibility to authorize in transactions to check the currency is consistent with the customer's profile in any associated countries so if you had a customer coming in that had a large amount of euros especially in the higher denomination notes but no connection to europe whatsoever then that would raise a red flag and may potentially be suspicious
1: okay that's brilliant yeah it's very it's very clear and it's also very sort of similar um, to general setups as well. I mean, you know, red flags is a, a big thing with an AML anyway, so <clears throat> actually understanding that from a casino perspective um, really sort of hones in on um, what we do from a institutional corporate background as well. Wow. Um, so just moving on, um, a lot of people now have uh, moved on to digital gaming, so iGaming, Uh, online gaming whatever you want to call it Um, and it's obviously a multi-billion dollar industry Um, and very simplistic Um, it allows people to gamble from home um, which is obviously very comforting for some. Um, How does this impact the physical casino industry JC?
2: So if we look at the UK the Gambling Commission published their industry statistics and they were released for the period up until March 2019. And they show us the size of the entire industry by revenue, which is known as GGY or gross gambling yield. So in 2019, the complete industry, the entire industry was worth £14.4 billion. And the remote sector made up £5.3 billion of that, which was actually a slight decrease since 2018 of about half a percent. With land-based, they only make up £1.1 billion. Pounds of GGY, but that is a 10.3% decrease since 2018. So we can see that the remote sector has actually long eclipsed land-based casinos by revenue, and it makes up the largest sector by GGY of about 37% of the overall market. Mm-hmm. And the growth in the online market may have been one of the contributing factors to cause a decline in land-based revenue. But with that being said, most UK land-based casino operators have. digital offer. So these revenues might not necessarily indicate competition between operators or sectors. And the casinos with a digital offer usually prospect their online customers from their existing customer retail base and that's through in-club promotions and digital hosts based in the casino who can assist people in signing up, giving them offers. Um, But from my own experience, casinos will always have and this may we a very small minority now what i call their hardcore customers or their hardcore regulars and these are the customers that love the casino experience they love the atmosphere the hospitality the social aspects and the familiarity with the gaming staff and also with casinos the customers have an element of control over the games so they can actually ask the dealer can you spin slower and they get to cut the cards on blackjack cut the cards on poker they can even ask to change the dealer or change the ball if their luck is not going their way. And these tend to be the older, more established, long-standing customers and the highest vendors. And that's something that's very difficult to replicate online, sitting in your pajamas on the sofa or suppose.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but I do have a good example. So one of these would be, we had a customer who played both the casino and the digital platform, and he was a well-known footballer. So we had established this source of funds that would establish this affordability because his wages were very well publicized. And he contacted us and asked us whether we could bar him online, yet maintain his membership of the casino, because he found the online product to be somewhat too accessible and a bit of a distraction at times. And he felt it was a casino atmosphere, which is what he liked about gambling. So we were able to facilitate that. With the COVID-19 situation playing out at the moment, I think we're likely to see further growth in online sector, especially with the return of sports betting. And it may take a while for customers to become comfortable returning to casinos with social distancing and likely reduced operating hours. But on the other side of the coin, this presents an increased social responsibility risk for those online operators.
1: That's a very interesting point. Very, very interesting. Okay, um, I'll move on to um, what are the um, biggest money laundering risks uh, posed in, uh, by iGaming?
2: So there are many, money laundering topologies associated with iGaming, aside from the good old credit card and ID fraud, which we all know is by no means specific risk to iGaming. Um, yeah. A report was released quite recently, I think it's April 2020 by iOvation, Um, and they analysed over 4 billion iGaming transactions, and they found that bonus abuse was their number one risk, and it's risen 72% in the last year. So bonus abuse is where individuals, customers, will apply for bonuses and other incentives using multiple email accounts, and this can be sometimes hundreds or thousands of accounts to take advantage of the eligibility requirements. And it's possible to see the money laundering risks here for example where there's a bonus offered by an operator and the customer is required to deposit their own money which is then matched if that customer has hundreds of email accounts set up specifically for this purpose they're able to structure their illicit funds by depositing them into those accounts in very small amounts which may not be significant enough to raise a transaction monitoring flag they can also use these accounts to facilitate what we call chip dumping. So chip dumping is a form of collusion play between customers on a peer-to-peer game. So a peer-to-peer game is where customers play against each other through that online portal or through the casino. So that one good example is Texas Hold'em poker, which I know is very popular. So a simple example would be if I have my ill-gotten gains and I need to pay you, Sandeep, and we we could both play on the same virtual poker table, I can seemingly lose lose to you uh, So I'm exploiting the casino or the online operator to facilitate payment directly to you. And when you withdraw those funds, they appear to be legitimate winnings on your bank statement. But according to the recent flurry of enforcement action against online operators by the GB Gambling Commission over the past few years, it seems the biggest risk would actually lie with systemic failure in AML and financial crime control frameworks. And that's poor due diligence processes or a lack of lack of technical compliance to internal policy and procedure. So I think overall, the biggest risks online operators are certainly facing are the internal risks within the integrity of their own processes. And this presents a regulatory risk, which, which we know can amount to fines in the multi-millions and we've seen this very recently.
1: That's really interesting, Josie. Because um, yeah, you're right there, I'm, I'm sure there's, um, You know, it's probably as easy as that getting onto the same table, passing funds between people, and sort of nipping straight back out, right? So it's kind of an in and out, and your funds are effectively cleaned. So yeah, no, it's a really, really good example. Um, so final sort of question, really, for for this podcast would be, um, you know, what are the three lines of defence in iGaming? I mean, we obviously know it for sort of land-based casinos and institutions and corporates, but what would it be for iGaming? Is it similar?
2: So the three lines of defense in our gaming is very similar, but it may differ slightly to the very definite three lines that the listeners are probably used to in financial services. So between the first and second line, there may be some blurring, especially with smaller operators, with smaller risk management teams, where the, the roles and employees within those teams may require them to wear more than one hat. So the first line of defense, are those that perform the BAU risk management functions. So in our game, this would be the customer registration or the onboarding team, the fraud and DD departments which process the screening and ongoing monitoring flags and build the DD cases. And to some extent even the customer acquisition and relationship managers. So although their primary role is commercial and operational one, they're still bound by the internal AML policy and the EU AML regulations and as employees of regulated businesses And this is irrespective of whether they're licensed by the regulatory authority or not. Um, The second line of defense are those oversight functions that set the directions define the policy and provide assurance. And that would be the board, the compliance and governance functions and the senior management, which would include the compliance director, nominated officer, MLROs, sometimes the department heads of AML, fraud and BD. So the second line function firstly determines at the board level the firm's risk appetite and tolerance and secondly they perform a, a corporate risk assessment taking into account all of the risk facing in their business so that's where it's very similar to financial services and that's actually a regulatory requirement in the UK um, for iGaming, that would be the jurisdictions they're operating in customer the customer DD risk but also the where their customers are located the products and services risk based on the games they're providing and the different product offers they have. And then they set the policy and monitor how the operational level interprets those policies into the BAU procedures and then how they execute them at a compliance level. And finally, they analyse the threats and trends and adjust their own defences on the basis of these monitoring outcomes. So, for the third third line of defence, this consists of internal and external audit offering the independent challenge to the levels of assurance provided by the first and second lines. And they're essentially looking for breaches, gaps, vulnerabilities in the integrity of the risk management system and the control framework. And this is all fed back to the board. So, for example, by the regulation, senior management have the sole responsibility to accept business relationships with PEPs and other high-risk customers determined by their own internal policy. So, they would go about checking that all PEPs in high-risk have been signed off by by a senior management But in recent enforcement actions, we've seen the Gambling Commission, as a regulatory body, is not particularly pleased when operators assign the senior man- management responsibility to commercial managers such as the COO, when in actual fact, the MLRO is a risk owner. So we can see that the three lines of defence in gaming mirrors financial services in many ways. and um, Both of these must be driven by tone from the top and the positive compliance culture at the second line governance level. There's not much difference, but I think in financial services, the roles are very much more defined. And with iGaming, especially with those smaller companies, there can be a little bit blurring there.
1: Thank you, Josie. I mean, it's it's a really good insight to... Um, gaming whether that be land-based um, or uh, digital gaming um, and I mean you've given some great examples there and I think you know one thing that's really sort of sat with me is yes you know the example you've given of um, COVID-19 I mean as a live example um, you know casinos are closed at the moment a lot of people who enjoy that um, aspect of gambling are probably doing it online um, and you know as you say there there are um, ways in which um you know consumers can actually um you know still launder money let's be honest um and it's and it's interesting because of the three lines of defense you know within iGaming, gaming um and the controls and the governance around that it seems as though there's still probably um you know leeway um an opportunity there for that to be tightened up or even you know let's call it more sort of watertight um you know ensuring that financial crime compliance is sort of you know, at the forefront of iGaming um, anyway. But it's been very, very insightful. So thank you very much, Josie.
2: You're welcome. Um,
1: And yeah, um, thank you. And I'm sure um, this podcast will be thoroughly enjoyed. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the latest Themis podcast. We hope you found it interesting and informative. If you would like to find out more about Themis, get in touch with us via our website www.crime.financial You can also subscribe for future news and interviews.